we are going to throw a lot of glitter at you for a really long time and you're going to love it. You're listening to Bent Notes Queer Musicology Podcast. This is episode six and I'm George Haggett. This episode features Dr. Hannah Marie Robbins, who's Assistant Professor in Popular Music at the University of Nottingham. Hannah is an expert in American popular music in its cultural context, especially the Broadway and Hollywood musical. She completed her PhD at the University of Sheffield and has been a visiting lecturer in musical theatre at the University of Leeds. She's published on queer culture, race representation and the construction of gender. Forthcoming publications focus on the roles of exoticism and commercialised feminism in the careers of women on stage and screen. And she's also working on a series of texts about Cole Porter's life and work, including a monograph on the hit musical Kiss Me Kate. Hannah and I zoomed in to talk about her chapter in Adapting the Wizard of Oz, which was published in 2018. I completely outed myself as a musical theatre queen during this interview, um, and because we couldn't get the rights to play any musical examples alongside it, there are some moments in this episode where I provide my own. For the impression of Glinda the Good Witch in particular, I can only apologise. Finally, a special welcome to anyone who's joining after hearing our paper at this year's online RMA conference. We really hope you enjoy the episode and come back to hear more in the future. This is Hannah Robbins. So, Hannah, thank you so much for joining me. We're going to talk about your chapter about why we're friends with Dorothy. <laughs> I actually rewatched The Wizard of Oz the other day just to kind of like refresh my memory about this film. And it turned out I absolutely didn't need to do that because I, I think as a kid, I just kind of watched it on loop. So this really vibed with me. I think. <laughs> but um, you say something kind of really interesting earlier on in your chapter about how the MGM film of this came out in 39. Judy Garland died in 69 which you point out was the same year as the Stonewall Uprising. And do you think that kind of did something to solidify her status as kind of a queer icon or maybe as a sort of tragic icon? Yeah, I think I think there's sort of a whole cyclical detail there. I mean, they were very close together, the proximity of her death and the Stonewall riots. So I think temporally there's an association in terms of what was happening, particularly in America at the time. And there's a lovely mythical story about somewhere over the rainbow being the last song she sang live on stage in a gig a few weeks before. And so the sort of connection between The Wizard of Oz Somewhere Over the Rainbow and her, in terms of her star iconography, is is central. And then I have spent quite a lot of time trying to figure out exactly how and why the association between the rainbow flag and Somewhere Over the Rainbow has been milked, if you like. That's an unfortunate expression, but has been put together. <laughs> because, um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, spoilers for anyone who hasn't read the chapter I talk about the use of Somewhere Over the Rainbow in the biographical film Milk over him attending a pride parade but I think that you've got the temporal proximity this association with Somewhere Over the Rainbow being significant to her identity as a performer but also having some sort of additional meaning for the queer community as a point of collective identity which is something that we fight about so much about what does it mean to be queer and it kind of joins up those things so yeah I think that's kind of what's going on there. Was The Wizard of Oz like an immediately iconic gay text or kind of did it happen slowly? I guess hard to say. It's hard to say because of the forms of suppression that we were dealing with and as I grapple with a little bit in the chapter there are different points of view about whether Friends of Dorothy is specifically connected to The Wizard of Oz or whether it was about Dorothy Parker and there are a couple of other suggestions about what that might mean but to some extent I don't think that matters because most people think it means The Wizard of Oz and that 
in itself is a form of cultural memory. Certainly, there is understood heritage in communication about dressing up and about coding separately that's linked to the Wizard of Oz from the sort of mid-1940s. But it's it's hard to really pinpoint that much before Garland's death, where forms of communication and presentation were changing. Yeah, and just sort of thinking about the legacy after her death, obviously it was a really sad accidental overdose. And then Liza Minnelli's life after that is very, very interesting as well. Yeah, and I think it is important to acknowledge that Judy Garland, although a beloved queer icon, is a complicated icon because she had mixed views about supporting her audiences. Like she wanted everyone to come as they were, but she also wasn't especially vocal in places she could have been at a time where there was a platform to make choices about that. Now, I don't want to be unfair to Garland, given how unwell she was and how particularly abused and traumatized she'd been by the industry and known the costs of making, in inverted commas, the wrong choices. But I do think where Liza Minnelli is an undeniable ally icon, Judy Garland is a little bit more complicated. Yeah, plenty of these figures, I think, have said really kind of offbeat stuff. I, I read a quote from David Bowie recently from like 79 or something, and he was like, yeah, I don't know if I'm for or against gay lib. I guess they don't want to be lonely. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, huh. Wow. Thanks, <laughs> David. <laughs> Gosh, um, yeah. yeah, I don't want to overstate this because I think that apologists lean on, oh, well, it was the time. But I do think that we have to recognise the power of people controlling stars in the period sort of the 30s through the 50s and how that what they said and how they behaved. This isn't specifically about queerness, but there's a lot of evidence about the ways in which Sammy Davis Jr.'s behaviour was policed. And when he was deemed to be having affairs with the wrong people, he was threatened and those kind of things. And so when he was aligned with political things that impacted his career. The same is definitely true for Lena Horne, who was marginalised under the communist investigations under McCarthyism because she was friends with some communists. So although these are not the same issues and we should never conflate them, I think it's important also to know that the powers that be, particularly the conservative powers that be, like to flex their muscles, particularly in the film industry. And that's a really complicated space to write about queerness in particularly for me as a Cole Porter scholar, where he was so out in so many ways and yet entirely not in another context. And that tension of being true to and open to yourself in the context that works for you is something we're still grappling to codify, I think, and also is odd for some of us now to understand. Mm. Yeah. So how old was Judy Garland in this? Was it sort of late teens, was it? Yeah, she was late teens, I think, for The Wizard of Oz itself. She had already been in a couple of films. She'd been associated with Sophie Tucker and she'd definitely done a Mickey Rooney movie as well. So it was the beginning of the development of her as a star icon. But I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine this with Shirley Temple. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Even now I sort of try and grapple with what that would have been like because Judy Garland brings such sort of innocence to it which in a way I don't think Shirley Temple had. I think her performances are much more um, enlightened and that's one of the beauties of this film is that you have this almost audience surrogate who is experiencing the wonder with you and that that's quite a magical dimension of The Wizard of Oz that we don't so often see in film now. 
a weird parallel that kind of like struck me. I was watching the first Pirates of the Caribbean last week mm-hmm. and you know when Elizabeth comes out on the pirate ship, the moon's out for the first time and she sees all the pirates as the zombies that they in fact are and suddenly all the colours drained out of the shot and it's this really horrifying, like immersive, very strange inversion of Dorothy entering Munchkinland. Yeah, and I, I find that transition is such an iconic screen moment but it comes to stand for so much as well. They wanted to do this in a Fred and Ginger film earlier and it didn't quite work. And it's kind of funny seeing it made good there in such a garish context. It's not like we walk into this beautiful past. I mean, it is beautiful, but you know what I'm saying. It doesn't have a sort of naturalism, I suppose. It completely exploits this moment of well, if we're going to do colour, we're going to do glitter and plastic and PVC and neon. And we're going to show you what we can do or what you haven't seen before. And there's something special about that in of itself, ignoring the story. Yeah, actually, going back to Judy Garland's performance, you've kind of commented on how she's obviously like post-pubescent in this film. And when she's speaking her dialogue, she's, it's, it's very childish and sort of very like wistful and, and yeah, innocent. But then when she sings, it's this very rich, low vocal colour. You quote Raymond Knapp describing this as a kind of drag. Yeah, I, I have complex feelings about that. I think one of the tensions in the film is nothing being quite as it seems and us accepting that and taking the magic for what it is. And in terms of her vocal performance, I think that one of the reasons Somewhere Over the Rainbow, specifically Somewhere Over the Rainbow, works so well is because it is sung with a level of understanding and that one of the reasons we are aware of her vocal tone being sort of different is that we are also experiencing a kind of different communication of meaning in that specific performance moment. And if anyone hasn't heard it, go onto YouTube and look up the cut version of Somewhere Over the Rainbow, which was supposed to take place when Dorothy is in prison with the Wicked Witch and the Time Turner is turned up and she just sings a reprise of Somewhere Over the Rainbow. We don't have all the orchestration, but it is some of the rawest singing you will ever hear. The first time I heard it, I was very, very emotional. It's absolutely beautiful. But in terms of sort of coding and associations, I think the juxtaposition, if you like, between her sort of youthful innocence, this sort of artifice, in fact, is kind of a persona when she's spoken Dorothy versus peeling back to kind of experiencing Judy Garland, uh, if you like, uh, in the vocal moment is an undeniable tension in the film as a whole. But also, I think, again, what makes its significance to us, the queer gays, so important because we recognise that sort of multiplicity as truth rather than artifice. And I think in a period of filmmaking when the singers were often dubbed, actually having someone having those juxtapositions vocally is also important in terms of true selves and different identities, but all being one rather than performative in the way that perhaps Knapp suggests. But I, I see where that is also coming from too, if that makes sense. 
a weird parallel that strikes me is Tallulah and Bugsy Malone, where Jodie Foster's <laughs> actually a child actress and speaks in this very husky, grown-up voice where she says things like, I like my men at my feet. But then the adult singer who they dub over her is really high-pitched and um, kind of hooty and it's really bizarre and doesn't feel at all queer in some ways. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of, again, an unfortunate pun, but it kind of feels a little bit like a straight jacket, isn't it? That they have a visualisation of what Tallulah should be and what that vocal delivery should be. And I always find this interesting in Disney films, actually, where you have a different speaking voice and a different singing voice and how that joins up. I, I was discussing with one of my friends the context of going to see Beyonce and the Lion King and the campness of being in a cinema where Beyonce speaks her first line as Nala and being in a room of people going... <gasps> <laughs> it's Beyonce and yet she doesn't step out of character until they insert her song which is 20-30 minutes later into the film so it is again that garland tension of fandom and accessing the identity of the performer which wasn't so much happening with The Wizard of Oz and I think that's also difficult for us as contemporary spectators is although Judy Garland was known she wasn't Judy Garland yet this made her Judy Garland so when it first came out it wasn't the same anticipation I think the same is true for Barbara Streisand that it's very hard for us not to see Judy Garland and Barbara Streisand and Liza Minnelli and Fred Astaire and figures like that and see them with you know capital F capital A Fred Astaire and a tap dance and a pose often which is something that musicals give us that lots of other things don't which is sort of a posture or a positioning of the figure so we even have a sort of specter of what we expect those people to be and that's really important for how we relate them to different social commentary as well. This idea of everything is is a bit more than it seems is a real staple of queer theory, but is a really particularly compelling way of re reading this film, I think. And you've kind of written about how the characters in Kansas then sort of reappear in Oz as these kind of larger than life, funny physics defying <laughs> creatures. I was quite interested in the Salman Rushdie stuff on the cinematography you kind of invoked as well, where Kansas is not just in sepia, but this very boxy, straight edged, but quite bleak mm. landscape as well. Well, whereas Oz is very swirly and kind of forks off in lots of different directions. I mean, we're getting into utopian visions, aren't we? And the idea of shaking off restrictive home and limited perspectives and this this transcends queer theory but it's integral as well is this sense of stepping into safety and losing regimentation and I loved that Rushdie thing about everything is sort of in lines in Kansas and then suddenly you come into Oz and it's like a collage of all the best things from Big Bird's wardrobe. It's just so rich and complicated and you don't know where to look first. And I can't, I'd love to know what it was like. I'm so sad lots of these materials don't exist anymore. I would love to know what it was like to walk onto that set when it had first been built and see it. It makes me think of the Willy Wonka chocolate factory, like that world building. And I think that that's something that in musicals, we haven't quite unpicked yet which is how important world building is to the sense of creating new realities that are better more exciting but also safer in ways we wouldn't necessarily have anticipated and what I really like about bringing the characters from one to the other was the idea of presenting potential and depth and that those are vital realities regardless of who you are in the straight jacket environment that 
everybody has the capacity to be more rounded and more exuberant and that that works for some people and doesn't work for other people. And I do think that The Wizard of Oz also grapples with lots of ways of being in a really subtle way, even though it feels very overt because it's like, here's a personality type that I'm going to pursue. But at each point, it dismantles that personality type. I mean, it really gets into toxic masculinity in a really passive way without actually going, here's a chat about why we should not behave this way. (laughs) And I think that's also really powerful and that sort of stepping from pretending to be a type, if you like, to recognising that types are arbitrary. It's a really important crossing from, you know, black and white colour yeah and that's kind of in the nuances of the performances i think as well way before like the tin man gets his like big plush heart (laughs) given by the wizard (laughs) just uh, the bit where he goes i hear a beat and then knocks his chest and goes how sweet it's obviously gorgeous and heartfelt and i think yeah like you say this kind of world building is something that we're kind of missing in more recent very hyper real musical adaptations like Les Mis and dare I say Cats uh, <laughs> or even La La Land which at the time so many people heralded as a return to the golden age I mean cards on the table I'm not a fan of La La Land so apologies to any La La Land fans <laughs> listening but the thing that the Wizard of Oz does is accepts excess but also deals with the intimate simultaneously. And my big gripe with the layers of La La Land is that it neither commits to the extremes, nor does it consistently deal with the intimate moments. So the ones that dream where she's auditioning very near the end of the film in... La Land is so touching. Her close to camera work is great, Emma Stone. But we don't actually see the extremes, I think, of musical theatre choreography and world building at any point in that. And that is, again, another problematic film, but one of the perks of The Greatest Showman is that The Greatest Showman has gone, who cares about history or factual accuracy or any form of social equity whatsoever? We are going to throw a lot of glitter at you for a really long time time and you're gonna love it and that really appeals to me all of the things that I've just mentioned make it a massive problem but that's one of the beauties of the Wizard of Oz and I think why we come back to it you have these details you have rubbish sets but you also have beautiful special effects and you kind of clock out of the bits that don't quite work because you can zone in on something else. And I don't think we see that in that many contemporary film musicals. I feel like we're afraid to commit because people want to be cool while watching musicals. And cool is so coded in not too much and only X amount of sentimentality. And the glitter can be in the highlighter, but it can't be all over your face kind of restrictions and I feel like The Wizard of Oz because it's fantastical allows us to throw those restrictions away which is really what musicals are about nothing about musicals are real and I find it very odd the realism journey we're going on (laughs) because as much as I burst into song all the time I have I have never received bad news and then performed a song about it and I think that that's something we have to engage with a little Mm. I think Lindsay Ellis has done some quite interesting video essays about this. So she talks about the invasion space movie pre and post 9-11 and why like Independence Day, which is so silly, 
holds its own but could not be made now yeah i think cards on the table i don't think we could make the wizard of oz now because i do think there are all sorts of things wrong with it (laughs) i mean there are numerous documentaries about the mistreatment of a number of the members of the cast specifically to do with how the munchkins were dealt with but not just but i say that and then i think but we did make the greatest showman like that that did happen and you know it erases all sorts of atrocities and no one's batting an eyelid so i do wonder i do wonder where we're going to go with that and how we're going to create a new form of musical i suppose and i worry that musicals have become more compartmental the further into its evolution we've become and that for many people there is a subcategory called queer musicals which is not a thing that i particularly subscribe to but i recognize that there are commentators and programmers specifically in terms of the industry who look at i mean even something like rent and go that's for a particular market but other things like like hedwig is an obvious fit there where i wonder if we're going to continue down this road of oh well this is for those people which is really the opposite of where we need to go yeah I think what you've been saying about kind of constraint and excess holds true musically as well. I mean, obviously, Somewhere of the Rainbow is a really sweeping, reaching, aspirational song in one sense, but it's also very constrained. It's just kind of like verse, middle eight, verse. And that middle eight is so... It's very uh, narrow, whereas as soon as you get to Munchkinland, there's like, bam, 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 three musical numbers. They're like high pageantry, kind of incoherent, but just suddenly the proliferation of content, (laughs) which is... (laughs) Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And I, I always lead with the, you know, somewhere over the rainbow was almost cut. And I think that because they thought they might not have any music in Kansas for exactly the reason that you're describing is that it is this cacophonous, chaotic, here's music for the sake of music, almost environment. And what what is the role of music? away from that space and I I mean what's so brilliant about that and I was just thinking about what you're saying about uh, restriction and excess is that somewhere over the rainbow is about escaping restriction and that it kind of bridges that gap narratively and I do think that that is the power of it I mean going all the way back to your first question is that I do think that the centrality of Judy Garland, the tragedy of Judy Garland's life, the proximity of her death to Stonewall, and then the messaging of this song, which was without question her most iconic recording and something that she revisited over and over and over again, has something to do with the way we view her now. Because of this tension of trying to be free and trying to find yourself and live outside of restriction when you know there is restriction, like I do think there's something something to that and that almost all, if not all, queer people have profound sort of connection to. Speaking of the significance of singing, I, I think it's very interesting that the Wicked Witch of the West doesn't get a song. Mm. It's interesting to me, particularly in the context of what the villain's song becomes and thinking particularly of Disney and the queer coding of villains in Disney, which is all sorts of problematic, but also joyous as well, because they always have the most fun (laughs) and the best costumes and often the best makeup. So, you know, uh, there's all sorts of positives that come come with that. But like you were saying about the voice, I think there's also something more in the fact that the Wicked Witch is the only character 
it's not quite fair, but almost the only character, certainly with a major role in The Wizard of Oz, who sounds how you expect her to sound in terms of that sort of nasal cackling that the actress sort of embodied really understanding what we expect a witch to be. And then you have sort of Glinda's sort of fluffy etherealness which I really I come out wherever (laughs) you are (laughs) I always I I always impose though I don't think this actually happens that she has a bubble machine behind her I know she arrives in a bubble but that sort of slightly you know 90s tacky (laughs) (laughs) you know someone's got like a glitter ball just out of shot and they're spinning it on her but what I love about that is that again we're getting this sort of joyous benefactory character is also presented in artifice as the wicked witch is kind of an authentic stereotype if that makes sense and that at all times we're playing with what authenticity is and i i was thinking about this in terms of queer theory and academia how often do we get to play with authenticity in a silly way and to be relaxed about it? Authenticity is such a pretentious concept in general, and it shouldn't be, but it has become something about self-elevation rather than self-preservation. And I think that something that The Wizard of Oz really unpacks is the idea of ephemeracy, realness, construction and aspiration but also how does any of that have anything to do with realness or authenticity and yeah I think there's something really cool about that and again the lack of music for the Wicked Witch drives that home like she's not part of the joy in a way that she's been distanced from the language of fun and self-exploration is a familiar code for musicals but particularly well executed in this context. Well, speaking of the Wicked Witch of the West, I guess making a comparison with Wicked is kind of an interesting thing to do here. Because for me, it kind of epitomizes a frozen era, quite straight Disney feminism. (laughs) So like rather than follow the yellow brick road, we're defying gravity, which is is really cool in its own way. But she also gets the guy, whereas Dorothy, as you say, it's like kind of asexual. Yeah, I... (laughs) I'm going to be very careful about Wicked. (laughs) People do love it. People do love it. And I am fairly well established as being a a dissenter on most things that people like when it comes to musicals, which is always, always sad. Because you mentioning it as a Frozen era. And of course, Frozen happened because of Wicked. Of course, yeah. No, no, no. but, But you've tapped into exactly the point that... Those two things have become inseparably connected, in part because of Adina Menzel, but also because the structure of Let It Go is a direct lift off Divine Gravity. Um, and so if you have any sort of musical familiarity with both, you can see that. But also vocally, timbrally, going back to one of your earlier questions, we have Anna and Elsa and this duality of womanhood, if you like, that is not really present in The Wizard of Oz that gets imposed in the Wicked stage adaptation. I should say that the Wicked book is much more complex. It has a range of gender identities. It deals with queerness as well in the series, things that do not obviously exist in the stage musical. And I understand what the point of that is. The stage musical is targeted at a very specific audience, but I also think that we lose something because the women are not in competition in The Wizard of Oz, even though the story suggests that they are, there is no interpersonal competition. And one of the sadnesses I have about the evolution of The Wizard of Oz 
phenomenon, if you like, is how it's become about competitive gender rather than about self-expression. And I do think that there is something of that in Wicked, that there is a sort of one-upmanship that then bleeds into Frozen. I mean, I just wrote an article about sort of palatability in Frozen and how the stage adaptation is... um, adds problems to the film because Anna and Elsa are perpetually grappling with whether they are the problem and Elsa's second torch song in the Frozen stage adaptation called Monster is content note in advance um, is very loosely about whether she should die in order to protect Arendelle and there's this sort of question about whether she should sacrifice herself or it's very murky but there is certainly a suicidal component and that's a really odd it's dissonant for me when we start with the Wizard of Oz to have ended up with two women not wanting to talk to each other and basically internally slut shaming themselves and deciding that their power is wrong. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's such a journey and, you know, it's not quite a century, but it's nearer a century than we would like it to be. <laughs> um, and we would attribute those values in the new works to values from the 30s at a heartbeat. And that's also something that I think is special about this particular film. There are all sorts of gender presentation problems, for example, but we can also disrupt them in The Wizard of Oz, which I think is very hard to do in Wicked, for example. And you may have seen, I, I rant about this on Twitter a lot, but I hate the use of queer potential as a surrogate for queer representation. I just think it's lazy and disappointing and at this current point we should be asking for more and it's fascinating that Elsa has become this focus point because she doesn't have a love interest rather than because she has a sexuality and that is tense and complicated and I think we need to demand better of our you know our queer heroes in this mainstream format. Yeah because I think romance just isn't even in in its vocabulary Uh, i mean like if the tin man and the scarecrow got together at the end it'd be like (laughs) or if there was some prince or something it'd just ruin the kind of coherence of it and it's something different to a queer potentiality when the scarecrow is like some folk go both ways that's very different to just Dumbledore was gay all along sort of style. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, It's superimposing, isn't it? I think, I think that's the thing about the Wizard of Oz is you're not superimposing. We are reacting to what we're given. The lion really does have a bow in his hair for like half the film. Yeah, absolutely. And he is grappling with how to be what he views to be a man and and what manhood means and how that manifests. And that's something that questioning of how gender identity relates to how we present again is something is we know what we're talking about it's it's avert even if it was unintended if that makes sense there's no we're not going oh I wonder what um mm, I don't know have I just heard something did I just see three seconds of someone looking at someone like you do in the Disney Beauty and the Beast yeah I completely agree and the strength of those different journeys and I think that's a a strength of the Wizard of Oz film and not the books is that these journeys are distinct and complementary and the people are processing their lives their way but with their companions and that's also something that we so seldom see in any form of self-exploratory journey 
you know, the eat, pray, loves of this world where someone goes off on their own around the world. But particularly for queer characters, we are so frequently presented on our own or in isolation or as the friend, whereas these are three, four people who are together, whatever. And there's a power in that unity as well. Yeah, certainly. To sort of invoke a really overtly queer passage in The Wizard of Oz's Afterlife, you kind of mentioned in passing some parallels with the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Was that made in the 70s? Late 70s, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's so obvious in terms of the world building, even the materials that we're looking at in the Rocky Horror film specifically. But then the overlap in terms of audience reaction the pageantry the conventions the sing-along wizard of oz the sing-along rocky horrors it's not the same in that there aren't the same levels of someone says something and everybody throws you know toast at the screen but at the same time there is sort of a sense of communal joy and moving out into a fantastic space and also the idea of artifice an artifice being complicated, it not being good or bad, it being, in fact, almost neutral because it's part of all of us. And The Wizard of Oz plays that beautifully and Rocky Horror really stretches that <laughs> as much as it as much as it can. Like, how much artificiality can I make before your brain implodes a little bit? And it's great, but it's also self-aware, even from the damn it, Janet. And I was thinking about going back to the sepia versus colour we have that same discourse in Rocky Horror as well, where we have these much more conventional, confined, happy, chatty musical theatre songs at the very beginning of the Rocky Horror film. And then we get into, you know, rock and bizarre choreography and surreal contexts. And that transformation is real. And they did talk about doing the colour switch for exactly the same reason to directly acknowledge that influence. And in a way, I think it's a shame they didn't, even though I understand it might have felt a bit laboured. <laughs> that makes sense yeah so i guess um to ask an unanswerable question (laughs) (laughs) okay (laughs) you're welcome um (laughs) is is oz a queer utopia Ooh. the unreasonable answer is oz can be (laughs) (laughs) it's funny because dorothy's whole journey is wanting to get out of it again (laughs) that's the kind of fly in the ointment for me that i can never quite work out Yeah. One of the things that I grapple with with the conversations about The Wizard of Oz in general is the idea that all, and I want to emphasise this, not all queer spectators of The Wizard of Oz assimilate with a character. And I don't think that that's the case. And again, I think that's a disruption to the idea of utopia and also codifying queerness in an unhelpful way. I think, going back to your thing about Dorothy wanting to get out, in a way it's because it's not her space though. And I think that that is quite interesting in a way in bodied allyship and safety. Do you read her as a coded character or do you read her as a surrogate ally? And if you read her as a surrogate ally, then she exists perfectly comfortably in this space because this world is something she is happy in, somewhere where she is loved, but also somewhere that isn't for her. And I think that that is something that queer communities in their pluralities require is, you know, magical safe spaces that are not for some other people. And so on that footing, yeah, absolutely. 
it's not a queer utopia from my point of view because I don't think I was just definitely overthinking it now but I, I, I don't think it's sufficiently intersectional <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely a, an underlying caste system going on, which oh. uh, is easy to skirt because of many of the great things about it. But um, it's not a utopia if not everyone is free. <laughs> well, this is like a really spelled out in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, right? Like the Oompa Loompas are straight up slaves. The yeah. racist coding is right there. Yeah. <laughs> and I think when we deal with musicals where there is a positive liberation element, it normally comes at the cost of another positive liberation element. And we have to be upfront about it. And I think we could do better. And what I really want <laughs> is the environment of the Wizard of Oz film and the politics, not the performances, but the politics of the Wiz film to squish together because there's this beautiful moment at the end of a song called Brand New Day which is after the Wicked Witch disintegrates in the Wiz and this is specifically in the film version where all of the munchkin surrogate characters shed these disfiguring costumes to reveal the dancers underneath and then they do this beautiful dance sequence and it's like literally shedding oppression in the most clunky like manifestation but at the same time it's so powerful because you see people rather than these sort of Muppet-like costumes that they've been wearing over the top. And I think that there's definitely some sort of space in between the two. Like, unfortunately, the Wiz film is um, not wonderful in many ways, albeit I love Diana Ross and I love Lena Horne. And, it, you know, many of the songs are great, but the film is difficult in lots of ways. But I think that there's got to be some utopian space <laughs> between the two where a sort of intersectional queer hub could be and we could all have a great time <laughs> yeah okay yeah just one last question before we finish what are you working on now you're only writing about the production code and you're a cold porter scholar so wow well yeah i'm working on a number of things i'm finishing up a chapter about lena horn at the moment which is it's become very complicated and it wasn't meant to be <laughs> um but it is dealing with how her star legacy has been interpreted through white spectatorship because there's so much emphasis on kind of objectifying her appearance and also trying to qualify her blackness, which would just never happen if black scholars were writing this work. And, you know, as a person of mixed heritage working in a largely white field, I find that dissonance quite uncomfortable i'm also working on a proposal about intersectionality in the musical at the moment which is quite exciting and i'm finishing my book on kiss me kate which i didn't discuss at all but i was thinking about this when we were talking about the extremes actually in the kiss me kate film they had the dancers on wires so when they were dancing when they would jump the wires would then take them an extra, you know, meter, meter and a half off the floor. So all of that looked really extreme. And they had like hidden trampolines in certain scenes as well. And it, it looks ridiculous, but also the cameras panned with them. So this sense of height and extremity is super extended. And I think that that's the kind of thing that we sort of lack now. The enterprise to go, you know what, I'm just going to extend this jump by a few feet. <laughs> <laughs> 
that magic is what we lack and I feel a bit like the Wizard of Oz just went I'm just gonna try I'm gonna try that's what we're gonna go for it we're gonna commit <laughs> make the room rotate <laughs> make, yeah make the room rotate Do, we got a smoke machine let's put a smoke machine in can that move well it can now Do you, <laughs> you know what I mean I just think like the Willy Wonka pure imagination concept this idea of letting our minds be free to explore is just it's kind of glorious and something that we we lack a bit so yeah i'm just i'm trying to pull together a, a million and one things at the same time but um i think that's the journey we are all on <laughs> at the moment um yeah it's it's a, a fun time to be researching and working it certainly is in this time of corona i mean Pick your musical carefully. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Watch the War of Lame is and I, I wouldn't I wouldn't put that too high on your um, your career thing. <laughs> yeah, I would definitely definitely yeah, pull out a friend ginger. Or watch The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> Crucially. Crucially. Anna, thank you so much. That was really, really fun. Bad. Yeah, thanks. This was, this was really nice just to talk about some fun stuff for a bit. That was Hannah Marie Robbins on Friends of Dorothy, Queerness in and Beyond the MGM film of The Wizard of Oz. Thanks again to Hannah for a fantastic interview, and be sure to look out for her forthcoming book on Cole Porter's Kiss Me Kate. As ever, you can read more about the study group at lgbtqmusicstudygroup.com, or find us on Twitter and Facebook, and let us know what you think. Bent Notes is produced by the LGBTQ Plus Music Study Group. We're supported by the Royal Musical Association, the Society for Musical Analysis, the British Forum for Ethnomusicology, and the Society for Musicology in Ireland.